Part three, chapters fifteen and sixteen of Democracy in America, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, Volume Two by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, chapter fifteen. Of the gravity of the Americans and why it does not prevent them from often committing inconsiderate actions men who live in democratic countries do not value the simple turbulent or coarse diversions in which the people indulge in aristocratic communities such diversions are thought by them to be puerile or insipid nor have they a greater inclination for the intellectual and refined amusements of the aristocratic classes they want something productive and substantial in their pleasures they want to mix actual fruition with their joy in aristocratic communities, the people readily give themselves up to bursts of tumultuous and boisterous gaiety, which shake off at once the recollection of their privations. The natives of democracies are not fond of being thus violently broken in upon, and they never lose sight of their own selves without regret. They prefer to these frivolous delights those more serious and silent amusements which are like business, and which do not drive business wholly from their minds. An American, instead of going in a leisure hour to dance merrily at some place of public resort, as the fellows of his calling continue to do throughout the greater part of Europe, shuts himself up at home to drink. He thus enjoys two pleasures. He can go on thinking of his business, and he can get drunk decently by his own fireside. I thought that the English constituted the most serious nation on the face of the earth, but I have since seen the Americans, and have changed my opinion." I do not mean to say that temperament has not a great deal to do with the character of the inhabitants of the United States, but I think that their political institutions are a still more influential cause. I believe the seriousness of the Americans arises partly from their pride. In democratic countries, even poor men entertain a lofty notion of their personal importance. They look upon themselves with complacency, and are apt to suppose that others are looking at them too. With this disposition, they watch their language and their actions with care and do not lay themselves open so as to betray their deficiencies. To preserve their dignity they think it necessary to retain their gravity. But I detect another, more deep-seated and powerful cause, which instinctively produces amongst the Americans this astonishing gravity. Under a despotism, communities give way at times to bursts of vehement joy, but they are generally gloomy and moody because they are afraid. Under absolute monarchies, tempered by the customs and manners of the country, their spirits are often cheerful and even, because as they have some freedom and a good deal of security, they are exempted from the most important cares of life. But all free peoples are serious, because their minds are habitually absorbed by the contemplation of some dangerous or difficult purpose. This is more especially the case amongst those free nations which form democratic communities. Then there are in all classes a very large number of men constantly occupied with the serious affairs of the government, and those whose thoughts are not engaged in the direction of the commonwealth are wholly engrossed by the acquisition of a private fortune. Amongst such a people, a serious demeanour ceases to be peculiar to certain men, and becomes a habit of the nation. We are told of small democracies in the days of antiquity, in which the citizens met upon the public places with garlands of roses, and spent almost all their time in dancing and theatrical amusements. I do not believe in such republics any more than in that of Plato, or, if the things we read of really happened, I do not hesitate to affirm that these supposed democracies were composed of very different elements from ours, and that they had nothing in common with the latter except their name. 
but it must not be supposed that, in the midst of all their toils, the people who live in democracies think themselves to be pitied. The contrary is remarked to be the case. No men are fonder of their own condition. Life would have no relish for them if they were delivered from the anxieties which harass them, and they show more attachment to their cares than aristocratic nations to their pleasures. I am next led to inquire how it is that these same democratic nations, which are so serious, sometimes act in so inconsiderate a manner. The Americans, who almost always preserve a staid demeanour and a frigid air, nevertheless frequently allow themselves to be borne away, far beyond the bound of reason, by a sudden passion or a hasty opinion, and they sometimes gravely commit strange absurdities. This contrast ought not to surprise us. There is one sort of ignorance which originates in extreme publicity. In despotic states, men know not how to act, because they are told nothing. In democratic nations, they often act at random, because nothing is to be left untold. The former do not know, the latter forget, and the chief features of each picture are lost to them in a bewilderment of details. It is astonishing what imprudent language a public man may sometimes use in free countries, and especially in democratic states, without being compromised, whereas in absolute monarchies a few words dropped by accident are enough to unmask him forever, and ruin him without hope of redemption. This is explained by what goes before. When a man speaks in the midst of a great crowd, many of his words are not heard, or are forthwith obliterated from the memories of those who hear them but amidst the silence of a mute and motionless throng the slightest whisper strikes the ear. In democracies men are never stationary. A thousand chances waft them to and fro, and their life is always the sport of unforeseen, or, so to speak, extemporaneous circumstances. Thus they are often obliged to do things which they have imperfectly learned, to say things they imperfectly understand, and to devote themselves to work for which they are unprepared by long apprenticeship, in aristocracies, every man has one sole object which he unceasingly pursues, but amongst democratic nations the existence of man is more complex. The same mind will almost always embrace several objects at the same time, and these objects are frequently wholly foreign to each other. As it cannot know them all well, the mind is readily satisfied with imperfect notions of each. When the inhabitant of democracies is not urged by his wants, he is so at least by his desires for of all the possessions which he sees around him, none are wholly beyond his reach. He therefore does everything in a hurry, he is always satisfied with pretty well, and never pauses more than an instant to consider what he has been doing. His curiosity is at once insatiable and cheaply satisfied, for he cares more to know a great deal quickly than to know anything well. He has no time and but little taste to search things to the bottom." Thus, then, democratic peoples are grave, because their social and political condition constantly leads them to engage in serious occupations, and they act inconsiderately, because they give but little time and attention to each of these occupations. The habit of inattention must be considered as the greatest bane of the democratic character. Chapter 16. Why the national vanity of the Americans is more restless and captious than that of the English. All free nations are vainglorious, but national pride is not displayed by all in the same manner. The Americans, in their intercourse with strangers, appear impatient of the smallest censure and insatiable of praise. The most slender eulogium is acceptable to them, the most exalted seldom contents them. They unceasingly harass you to extort praise, and if you resist their entreaties they fall to praising themselves. 
it would seem as if, doubting their own merit, they wish to have it constantly exhibited before their eyes. Their vanity is not only greedy, but restless and jealous. It will grant nothing, whilst it demands everything, but is ready to beg and to quarrel at the same time. If I say to an American that the country he lives in is a fine one, I, he replies, there is not its fellow in the world. If I applaud the freedom which its inhabitants enjoy, he answers, Freedom is a fine thing, but few nations are worthy to enjoy it. If I remark the purity of morals which distinguishes the United States, I can imagine, says he, that a stranger who has been struck by the corruption of all other nations is astonished at the difference. At length I leave him to the contemplation of himself, but he returns to the charge and does not desist till he has got me to repeat all I had just been saying. It is impossible to conceive a more troublesome or more garrulous patriotism. It wearies even those who are disposed to respect it. Such is not the case with the English. An Englishman calmly enjoys the real or imaginary advantages which, in his opinion, his country possesses. If he grants nothing to other nations, neither does he solicit anything for his own. The censure of foreigners does not affect him, and their praise hardly flatters him. His position with regard to the rest of the world is one of disdainful and ignorant reserve. His pride requires no sustenance. It nourishes itself. It is remarkable that two nations, so recently sprung from the same stock, should be so opposite to one another in their manner of feeling and conversing. In aristocratic countries the great possess immense privileges upon which their pride rests without seeking to rely upon the lesser advantages which accrue to them. As these privileges came to them by inheritance, they regard them in some sort as a portion of themselves, or at least as a natural right inherent in their own persons. They therefore entertain a calm sense of their superiority. They do not dream of vaunting privileges which everyone perceives and no one contests, and these things are not sufficiently new to them to be made topics of conversation. They stand unmoved in their solitary greatness, well assured that they are seen of all the world without any effort to show themselves off, and that no one will attempt to drive them from that position. When an aristocracy carries on the public affairs, its national pride naturally assumes this reserved, indifferent, and haughty form, which is imitated by all the other classes of the nation. When, on the contrary, social conditions differ but little, the slightest privileges are of some importance, as every man sees around himself a million of people enjoying precisely similar or analogous advantages, his pride becomes craving and jealous. He clings to mere trifles and doggedly defends them. In democracies, as the conditions of life are very fluctuating, men have almost always recently acquired the advantages which they possess. The consequence is that they feel extreme pleasure in exhibiting them, to show others and convince themselves that they really enjoy them. As at any instant these same advantages may be lost, their possessors are constantly on the alert, and make a point of showing that they still retain them. Men living in democracies love their country just as they love themselves, and they transfer the habits of their private vanity to their vanity as a nation. The restless and insatiable vanity of a democratic people originates so entirely in the equality and precariousness of social conditions that the members of the haughtiest nobility display the very same passion in those lesser portions of their existence in which there is anything fluctuating or contested. An aristocratic class always differs greatly from the other classes of the nation by the extent and perpetuity of its privileges, but it often happens that the only differences between the members who belong to it consist in small transient advantages, which may any day be lost or acquired. 
the members of a powerful aristocracy, collected in a capital or a court, have been known to contest with virulence those frivolous privileges which depend on the caprice of fashion or the will of their master. These persons, then, displayed towards each other precisely the same puerile jealousies which animate the men of democracies, the same eagerness to snatch the smallest advantages which their equals contested, and the same desire to parade ostentatiously those of which they were in possession. If national pride ever entered into the minds of courtiers, I do not question that they would display it in the same manner as the members of a democratic community. End of chapters 15 and 16